listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. What is on your Christmas wish list this year? Is, is there one thing that you're really hoping to get uh, that maybe you wouldn't be able to get for yourself? Uh, or maybe I see some kids who are kind of bouncing up and down. Well, you can shout it out. That's fine. A wallet. A wallet. With money or without? Because I'd take one that had, like, if it's loaded with 20s, that would be primo. Maybe think about what it is that you're really hoping for this year. Or you could think back to, maybe, was there a, a dream gift that you really wanted as a kid? And what happened when you got that? Or maybe when you didn't get it? Uh, this is the time of year, of course, where we start seeing all the Christmas movies come out. Have any of you seen the movie A Christmas Story? Yes, it's sort of the nostalgic reminiscence of this uh, young boy back to his childhood, I think in Cleveland, probably in the 1930s, and there's only one thing that little Ralphie desperately needs and wants for Christmas, a 200-round lever-action range model air rifle from Red Ryder, because if he has that, he'll be the coolest kid on the block, he'll be able to defend his family from the bad guys that he imagines, and Ralphie makes the classic mistake. He doesn't mention it to his dad. He mentions it to his mom. And her answer is, you'll put your eye out. Exactly. Oh, Ralphie's crushed. He needs this rifle for Christmas. Suddenly, hope appears. The teacher announces that everyone in the class is going to write an essay, What I Want for Christmas. The light bulbs go off. I'll write such a good essay, the teacher will be impressed, and she'll convince mom that I need this air rifle. So he writes the essay, and it comes back with a C-plus on it, and worst of all, a note at the bottom. You'll put your eye out. <laughs> Ralphie is just about to give up hope on this dream for the happiest Christmas ever when suddenly he remembers Santa. I can go see Santa at the department store and do an end run around mom and the teacher. He waits in line for hours at the store. It's almost closing time. He's been patient. He's frustrated. He finally gets up to see Santa and he freezes. He can't remember what it is he wants. One of the elves grabs Ralphie and impatiently starts to shove him away when Ralphie quickly recaptures his memory and blurts out, I want a 200-round carbine action range model Red Rider air rifle. And Santa looks at him and smiles and says, you'll put your eye out, kid, and shoves him away. Why is it that when we're kids, or if you are kids, we, we have these ideas about what we long for for Christmas? Why, why is it that we as adults hope for what we hope for? Because I think we believe that the things that we hope for are going to give us satisfaction. They're going to solve some problem. They're going to answer a need for us. When I was a kid, I hoped for toys and presents that would solve my lack of entertainment problem or maybe my lack of coolness problem. And as adults, we long for solutions and answers and things that will solve our whatever it is, fill in the blank problem. 
problems about jobs or money or relationships or health or entertainment or coolness or whatever it is. We all carry around us this, this list of if-onlys. If only I had this, if only things were different, if only things were better. And whatever that answer to the if-only is, that reveals what you're hoping for. That kind of is a clue to what we think will solve our problems and answer our needs. And Advent is a season that's all about longing and hoping and the promise of fulfillment, the hope of having our greatest needs actually satisfied. Because no matter what we define as the biggest problem in life and what we think will be the solution, the Bible is clear, nothing external to us. Nothing that we can do, nothing that we can have, nothing that we can accomplish, nothing that will change around us will fill the longing and the need inside of us. And there's nothing that we can change in ourselves that will satisfy our souls and give us what we were made for. What we most need is an encounter with God that changes us. I think that's what John is getting at in this one significant, profound verse. What we most need is an encounter with God that changes us. Over these four weeks leading up to Christmas that the church historically has celebrated as Advent, we're in this first part of John's gospel looking at God's promises fulfilled, God's promises kept in Jesus. How Jesus comes to fulfill all the things that God has promised and prophesied to solve our deepest problems and provide what we most need and long for. And that's what we want to look at today in this one verse. How what we most need that God provides is an encounter with him that changes us. And the significance of seeing his glory, how he took on flesh, and how he came to dwell among us. So that's the outline that we'll follow and the things we want to look at today. John says in in the middle of verse 14, we have seen his glory, Jesus' glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we'll look next week in more detail at this idea of grace and truth and the fullness of Jesus. John says here, we have seen his glory, the glory of God in the Son. The Son is is one who bears likeness to the Father. That's the significance here. When we look at Jesus, we're seeing God the Father. What does it mean to see God's glory in Jesus? This Hebrew concept of glory that John is echoing or reflecting on here literally means weightiness, heaviness. It gives the idea of what is significant versus what is unimportant, what is permanent versus what is temporary, what is real as opposed to you know, what's dreamlike or invented. When the Bible talks about God's glory, it's talking about his significance, the fact that compared to everything else, God alone is permanent. God alone is what ultimately matters. An image of this is, you know, we've all seen this, if you drop something in a body of water, in a pond or in the sink or whatever, it displaces the water. It makes a wave because it's weightier. It, it has an impact on the water because it has more glory. It's more substantial. And if we think back, every place in the Bible where God comes down, the earth is 
moved. The earth is shaken because God is the real, the substantial, the glorious one. So when he comes down to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, the mountain is shaken and there's uh, thunder and smoke and, and trumpet blasts. And, and when he comes down into the upper room in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, the room trembles and shakes violently because his glory has appeared. And, and I read this passage in John, and I think I, I just pass by this mention of seeing God's glory in Jesus Christ. It should grab me, but because when the reality of God comes into our lives, when the reality of his glory becomes real to us, it changes us. Tim Keller tells how at a Christian camp in Colorado, a, a Bible teacher shared a, an illustration that changed his life. She said, if the distance between the sun and the earth, some 92 million miles, was reduced to the thickness of a sheet of paper, this is the distance between the earth and the sun, then the distance between the earth and the next nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. And the span of our galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. The distance from here to the Wisconsin Dells or Nashville, Tennessee, that's the span of our galaxy. And our galaxy is, by comparison, a speck of dust in the universe. And the Bible says Jesus Christ holds that all together by the word of his power. In, in essence, simply by his will, by, by you know, the exercising nothing more than the power in the tip of his pinky finger. And then she asked, is this the kind of person you're going to ask in your life to be your assistant? Keller says, I remember very clearly that I realized up until that point, I had thought of God as being available to me and, and wanting him to be around me in some sense, but I began during that talk, obviously, to sense God's reality. I began to experience his glory. And he says, I didn't have some vision like Isaiah in the temple, but he stopped being a concept and he became a reality to me. When God is merely a a concept in our lives. We sort of shape him to fit us, right? God doesn't move us around. We believe things about God, but, but they don't really impact us. They don't challenge us. They don't shake us. You know, sometimes maybe we believe in God because, oh, you know, there must be a creator. There's got to be a reason this is all here. Or we believe in God because there's a future and we hope that we're going to go and live in heaven with God someday. Or we believe in God because he's a good force in the world and, uh, you know, I want him to help me be a better person. I, I want strength. I, I want to, you know, raise my kids the right way. I, I want to be, you know, advancing in some way. And I fit God into my beliefs and priorities and agenda. When we actually see God's glory, when his presence becomes real to us, all those things give way in life to his glory. We, we start to reorient our lives around him and his word and his will and his ways. Because God has more glory than me. God has more weight. God has more significance to me than my beliefs and my priorities. He can change the things that I think. He can change what I want. He can reassign me. He can rewrite my agenda and my goals for my life. Because my agenda, apart from God, is to basically just have a nice, easy life free of interruptions and complications and difficulty. When God comes into your life, all that starts to change. 
Has that happened to you? Have have you seen God in a way that, that he's glorious, that he's significant, that he's weighty enough that he can change you? That he can rewrite the script. That he can contradict you. That he can reorder your priorities and agenda. Because if we're out of touch with God's glory, we're out of touch with reality. We're not living in light of what's real and what's true. Because what we most need is an encounter with God that changes us. And that can sound kind of overwhelming, you know, as if God's intent is to overpower us, you know, sort of shout us down and command us, and our job is just salute and say yes, sir, and obey. God's intent in creating people in his image was to live with them, to have a relationship with them. That's the way it was in the beginning. God created this man and this woman, and he puts them in this beautiful place and gives them meaningful work to order the creation for good. And in the cool of the day, God would come and walk with them. And they would actually see God face to face. They would live in his presence and see his glory. They had total, unbroken access, intimacy, relationship with the creator. And then because they're humans like us, they ruined it, right? I mean, they said, no, we don't want that. We're going to go our own way. We'll figure it out on ourselves. And the rest of the Bible is God's story of consistently pursuing relationship with us messed up, broken people who are now unable, undeserving, and unwilling to live with him on his terms. But John tells us that God took on flesh. The very word flesh suggests humility and frailty, right? Vulnerability and and closeness and, and intimacy. The Word of God actually becomes vulnerable in taking on flesh. Christianity says that the divine creator of everything has become human and therefore became weak, became vulnerable to come to us. There's a somewhat famous news story. It's a bit older now, but in the 1960s, a young woman named Kitty Genovese was going home in New York City at night in the dark and was accosted by someone who started attacking her. And she wasn't in the middle of nowhere. There was apartments all around her. She started yelling out, help, help, I'm being attacked. And news reports sort of vary exactly on what happened, but what we at least know for sure is that lights went on in the apartments and and people looked out their windows and she kept yelling, help, help, I'm being attacked. But no one came down to help her. Now, it would be easy for us from that distance to become kind of judgmental of those people, but I can understand why those people didn't come out of their apartments to help, because you risk your life. You enter that dangerous situation, you're in likelihood of being hurt yourself. And people didn't want to take the risk. They didn't want to make themselves vulnerable and come down and help. An incarnation, John is telling us at Christmas, is about God hearing our cries and coming down and making himself vulnerable. And not just making himself vulnerable in the way that those people would have come down from their apartments, possibly risking their lives. God came down knowing it would cost him his life. God came down with the intent of giving up his life 
for our sake. Jesus took on flesh with the purpose of becoming vulnerable. And and there's also a level of intimacy and availability there. You know, at this time of year, we may hear things like the passage from Isaiah that gets reflected in Handel's Messiah, that he is a wonderful counselor. What does that mean? Well, the best counselors are the people who have gone through a problem and come out the other side and have some perspective and understanding and empathy because they've been through what you're going through. You know, both my parents were only children. So when my brothers and I got into fights or arguments or kids, my parents really didn't have a lot of experience or know-how to be able to help us sort through problems, right? Pastor Nathan grew up in a family of eight brothers. So if you need to know, how do you learn how to get along with people who are different? How do you negotiate? How do you figure out taking turns? How do you figure out uh, how to think about someone beyond yourself? How do you learn patience? How do you... How do you uh, take turns and share? Pastor Nathan's the guy you go to talk to, right? Because he's had to learn it. He, he knows what that's like. There are counselors who understand because they've been through it. And Jesus, the Bible says, is a wonderful counselor because the Word became flesh and experienced everything that we do. Hunger, fear, Loneliness, poverty, exile, danger, injury, grief, rejection, torture, injustice. He's experienced it all. He knows it. Have you been betrayed? So has he. Are you lonely? So was he. Are you facing death? So did he. He's a wonderful counselor. You you can trust him. He took on flesh to enter into our world. So go to him with whatever you've got, whatever you're going through. And, And I know some of us can say, you know, I have gone to him. I did go to him. I prayed and I was in trouble and and he didn't answer. He didn't come through. My request was denied. It, It feels like he's abandoned me. God knows what that's like too. God knows what it's like to feel abandoned by God. God knows what it's like to have legitimate prayer requests denied because in the garden, Jesus prayed, Father, if it's possible to save the world without me having to go to the cross, let's do that. And the Father said no. On the cross, Jesus hung And stretched out his arms and poured out his life saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Incarnation means when you're struggling and you've got problems and you're hurting and you're in need. And it feels like God isn't listening. And in fact, maybe he isn't answering your prayers the way you want. Jesus, the wonderful counselor, has been there too. And he's there with you. He's there with you. In the same place. That means that we can be real with God and cry out to him, God, why are you allowing this? Why are you not allowing this? Because Jesus has experienced even that. He's gone through it all. He even knows what it's like to feel abandoned by his father. God taking on flesh means that you can 
frame all your struggles, all your suffering, all your questions, all your doubts with the knowledge that the Word became flesh and you can go to Him with anything because He knows and He understands and He is with you in it. Because see, what we most need is an encounter with God that changes us. The eternal Word of God entered into creation John says, by becoming a human named Jesus. The significance of what does it mean that God dwelled with us? It literally means to live in a tent. And when our kids were little, we did some tent camping with them. And anyone who has ever gone tent camping knows the sacrifice, the love, and the discomfort that's all wrapped up in this. Right? You get a worse night's sleep. And everything takes twice as long. And you don't know where anything is. And everyone smells musty and smoky and dirty. And uh, I don't want to leave home because that's where my bed and my coffee maker are, right? Why would Jesus leave the glory and the beauty and the perfection of heaven to slum it with us? There's something going on here significant in the Greek that John uses. It, it, maybe it shows up in your translation. It's not just that Jesus lived in a tent. What he literally says is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John deliberately takes the word that the readers of the Old Testament Greek translation called the Septuagint would have known. And, and he uses the word for the tent of meeting, the tabernacle that Moses had set up in the wilderness. And, and just to make absolutely sure that we get what he's pointing out, he says, the word tabernacled among us and we saw his glory. See, remember when Moses is up on the mountain of God, he says, I want to see you, Lord. I, I want a vision of your greatness. I want to see your beauty. Show me your face. Reveal your glory to me. And here's another time where God says, no, I, I can't do that, in fact, because I love you. It will kill you. You cannot see my glory. But build the tabernacle, and that will be my dwelling place. And in there, I will be present. In the Holy of Holies, behind the veil, because my glory has to be concealed, because you can't see it in its fullness. You can't touch it, but I'll be there. And think about the contrast to what John is telling us here. When Jesus tabernacles with us, we behold his glory that Moses could not. That tells us a couple of significant things. It, it means, first of all, that John is pointing out Jesus is the end of religion as we know it. Jesus is the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the meeting place of God and man. It's where sin is dealt with and people enter into God's presence. Not because of anything that they've done, but simply because God makes it possible for sinful people to come be around him. Religion says do all this stuff, fulfill all these rules, and then you'll be accepted. And Christianity says Jesus did all this stuff and fulfilled all the rules so that you are now accepted. And now he wants to help you live up to what God wants you to be. Religion says, live this way and you'll be right with God. Christianity says, no, you're right with God because of what Jesus has done. And now you live this way. And because Jesus is the tabernacle, he's the end of tabernacles. He's the sacrifice. He's the end of sacrifices. He's the priest. He's the end of priests. There's no one else, no rituals, no person that we go through to get to God. That is Jesus. He's it. 
He's the answer. He's the fulfillment. And all we do is come to him in faith. He is where God and humanity are united as one so that we can see and experience his glory. Christmas is saying, we're, we're not coming to give you, I'm not coming to give you a religion. I'm coming to give you myself, Jesus says. That's the point. But there's something more because John is saying we can actually behold the glory that Moses couldn't. Why wasn't Moses able to behold the glory? Why did God say, you can't come into my presence? I remember back when uh, my brothers and I were playing at our grandparents' house in Oklahoma one time. I was in you know, grade school, maybe second grade or something. And uh, we turned on the hose and we made a big mud pit in, in the back of their yard. And we were just rolling around in the mud and, and having a great time. And my grandparents, I don't, I don't totally remember this, but they had the foresight to take a picture. And man, we were adorable. But covered head to toe in mud. Now, it was getting close to dinner time. And, of course, we're three hungry boys. We want to go in and eat. And there is no way Grandma is letting us in the house covered head to toe in mud. And there's also no way that I'm going to be able to clean myself up enough to be worthy, presentable to go in the house. So Grandpa has to get the garden hose and spray us off and clean us off and dry us. And and then we can go into the house and eat, right? The mess that I made of myself playing in the mud is nothing compared to the mess and the brokenness and the pollution that we bring on ourselves in our sinful rebellion against God. He's the reality. He's the glorious one. He's the righteous, holy one that we are to align ourselves around, that we're to shape ourselves towards, but we're all bent on going our own way and playing in the mud piles and thumbing our noses at God and telling him, no, I I think I'll just go my way and I think I know better than you do. We're not more than dirty. I mean, we're, we're more than dirty. We're not just dirty. We're polluted. We're rebels. And God says our guilty, sinful rebellion deserves death. So we can't just come into God's presence. But he's made a way for us to come to him. He will accept a sinless substitute in the place of guilty sinners so that we don't have to die for our sins. And that's what the tabernacle was pointing out. Do you see it? Because God's glory dwelled there and he's present and he says, okay, you can't just come into my presence, but through this spotless sacrifice offered in your place, I will accept it and then you can be with me. And you will be right and you'll be forgiven. And John says the word, Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. And the tabernacle's the place where a spotless sacrifice is offered so that sinful people can come and live in the presence of a holy God and see his glory and have access to him again. Jesus Christ is God come to earth to be vulnerable and to be available so that he could become killable? So that he could die for us in order to bring us back to the Father and so that we could have access to him again and live in his glorious presence. That's why at Christmas we have the glory of God become a a baby 
So many of the images in the Old Testament of God's glory are about, you know, majesty and, and transcendence and difference and uh, thunder and lightning and smoke and fire and, and do not come close and warning, right? Because the glory of God would consume us. But now God has become a baby in the person of Jesus so that he could grow up and die on the cross to be the final sacrifice for sin. And just as God entered into history in the person of Jesus Christ, he can now enter into your life and to bring his glory and his beauty and, and his transformation. That's what Christmas means, that the, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us so that now we can experience the glory of God through Jesus that Moses wasn't able to see because what we most need is an encounter with God that changes us. You know, at the end of a Christmas story, Ralphie actually does end up getting the gun. His dad surprises him with one last Christmas gift, that Red Ryder 200-shot carbine action range model air rifle. He is happier than any kid ever was on any Christmas ever. He cannot believe it. And he quickly throws on some boots and an overcoat, and he runs out to the backyard to try out the thing he'd been longing for and hoping for. And Ralphie imagines himself as the as the hero in the white hat, and he's going to shoot the bad guy defending his family, and he, and he fires off a shot, and it ricochets off a piece of metal and comes back and hits him in the eye. I put my eye out, he says. He didn't. He was okay. But the BB gun suddenly became less important than his eye, and then, of course, what his mom is going to say. And he manages to concoct a story to get out of it, but the point is this thing that seems so important to him in the light of something more significant, like potentially losing his eyesight or his mom's wrath, paled in comparison now. And it didn't bring him what he thought it was going to bring him. And that's what John is telling us. That's what Advent is telling us. And when we give up all those alternate sources of hope that can never really satisfy us or save us, that's a good place to be because then we can pursue the only source of lasting hope, the Savior Jesus who came to take on flesh so that we can be with God in a way that transforms us. Use this Advent season to, to remember that all of us hope and, and to maybe examine those hopes and longings. All of our lives are shaped and directed and motivated by what we long for, what we hope for. And John is telling us the Bible is telling us that our biggest problems are not related to other people or our current situation or our location or our finances or our health, as significant as those things are. Because a change of those things will not solve what is most wrong with us and what we most desperately need. As, as we enter this season where we give and receive gifts, what God is offering to you in Jesus, the, the rescue and the life and the transformation is a free gift that we receive by faith. Because the hope that your life needs will never come in a present wrapped and placed under a tree. The hope that your life needs was a gift placed in a manger and ultimately going to hang on a different kind of tree to reconcile us to God and bring us into life. Because what we most need is an encounter with God that changes us. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for showing us more of who you are and how you come to us in Jesus so that we can encounter you and see your glory in ways that change our lives. Well, Father, help us not just to settle for feeling warm and inspired this season. Help us not to have our hope in things that we can give or receive or experience. Help us to come to you, to find you, to meet with you in a way that changes us, challenges us, encourages us, and gives us real and lasting hope so that we would be more like your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.